Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Percy here with Todd. Hey there. And contributor Corey Flores. Sup, y'all? Today, we're going to talk about villains, specifically what makes a good villain, as well as how villains have historically been queer coded in media. So why have villains been historically queer coded? I was reading The Horror of Our Love, um, a paper by Drumlin and M. Crepe. Um, I hope I'm saying your name right. Anyway, um, The Horror of Our Love dives into the gothic roots of queer coding, citing Ruth Bienstock and Nolik. Um, gothic anxieties regarding sex and sexuality are a manifestation of the fear of the unknown. The anxiety is not generated by some generalized fear of sex, but is an anxious response to the difference of the sexual other, who as unknowable and therefore as mysterious and frightening as the supernatural. Taking this idea a step further, Crape posits, when dealing with human monsters, the production of evil tends to still rely on naming the characteristics of the other. Human groups who have been marginalized by racism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, or anti-Semitism. Among these forces of marginalization, homophobia and transphobia contribute to queer coding villainy in the Gothic, where the horror of a text can be located in digressions from norms of gender and sexuality. Dramatic pause, because we all just got angry by listening to that. (laughs) (laughs) That shit sucks. Anyhow, let's move on to good things, except not. Um, (laughs) Before we get into the parts where there's more beef, we're going to stick in the tofu region right now of the past. Further, villains may not explicitly engage in queer sexual or romantic relationships. That's bullshit. But their manner of dress, behavior, interactions with other characters of their gender or dialogue may imply their otherness and in doing so reinforce their villainy. Well, and so like this um, lines up with stuff like Disney villains who like are never explicitly sexual or often like there's been what? three gay characters in all of Disney's media so far. And it's usually background characters smooching. And it's not like, like Scar is coded gay, but Scar does not have gay lion sex. And we are the worst for it. We honestly could really benefit from some. Um, Well, and I think if we're thinking about like tangible effects of this, like if we think about why queer coding is a bad thing, I think part of it is that it's sort of, and obviously I'm not necessarily, I'm not arguing for like explicit sex in Disney films. That's not what I'm trying to argue for. Um, I'll Todd, argue for it. <laughs> um, but I do think it, this, uh, the fact that most recognizable ish queer representation that we see in a lot of media is this sort of sexless, heavily implied queerness. It sort of contributes to that, like no kink at pride, sexless queerness that we were talking about in our queer theater episode, this sort of like queerness is only acceptable and palatable if it is sort of divorced from any like any real personality or flavor well and here it's often being used as a shorthand for villainy like by showing that this character is queer you understand why they must be evil because gay people are evil because gay people are evil and we're gonna touch on this in a minute when we talk about the haze code but having these signifiers for villains and having it be consistent in multiple movies, not just Disney, but we are looking at you, in media and in gameplay and in stories and different things, like we begin to associate that with society. It's just something that through repetition becomes something that's kind of in your brain. And you're like, oh, well, these things are bad because everything, like 
all of these people are painted as bad. All of these creatures are painted as bad. So it must be bad. It kind of just like puts a filter over your eyes and how you perceive people and you associate things automatically, which you're not supposed to do, y'all. And then like shifting gears a little bit um, further in the horror of our love, which is a really lovely article that y'all should read. Um, It's kind of about like queer coding and um, Hannibal the TV show and like how it uses queer coding, but kind of subverts some of the ideas of queer coding because the show becomes more overtly queer in like a positive way. Touching on like the enemies to lovers trope that we'll get to later, Crepe explains that traditionally the love of another person could be the factor in transforming a villain from a monstrous threat to a human anti-hero as reflected by the connection between the Gothic villain and the Byronic hero. Um, With varying degrees of success, both of these archetypes can find redemption by the utterly unique moment of love. He's so cute. Um, So we talked earlier, briefly mentioned the Hayes Code, and I want to dive into that for a hot second. It's going to be bad for a second, so buckle down, everyone. Um, But this was back in the 1930s. The Hayes Code was generally like self-imposed industry guidelines established to standardize what should be allowed to be portrayed in film. So we talked about using media to kind of shape how you perceive the world or like what you associate as good or bad. This, the Hayes Code was basically kind of this set of guidelines that would prohibit the production of any movie that would quote unquote lower the moral standards of those who see it, which is a very generic kind of blanket term, which meant they had a lot of freedom to block a lot of these characters. Um, But it was originally set with the intention of like, oh, don't do crime. Like crime's not cool. Don't do certain things that we can all kind of by majority assume are wrong. But then it went into, well, these things we think are evil or sinful. And that's where it became a big problem. And getting homosexual homosexuality involved in portraying that as something sinful and evil and allowing it to be protected by this Hayes Code set of guidelines. Um, It really villainized queerness and any queer signifiers. And yeah, it's really the reason for banning portrayals of homosexuality. Like it's because it was perceived to be immoral. It was meant to be portrayed as evil to prevent people from wanting to portray that or relate with it in a good way and see it as a positive thing. I also think that we see an inverse, an inversion of this phenomenon in contemporary, maybe not contemporary, but at least media from like when I was growing up where rather than like villains who were coded as queer or Jewish or, you know, any variety of, groups that the Hayes Code would consider immoral. Um, You see villains who are recognizable and legible as villains because they're racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic, as opposed to like uh, having literally any other motivation, Um, which I think is, is not as, not as bad with a capital B, but is also like not good storytelling. But yeah, people are multidimensional creatures. Villains are multidimensional and having it just be like, this is their one trait that is their downfall. I think that we need a lot more in terms of painting how they got to be that way, how the situation has become like that. I think that's really important for us 
being able to paint something that's a little bit more believable and not just like we're catering to one certain um, opinion in a plot. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, looking at pop culture, there's many, uh, like if we want to just because they're very popular and very out there, if you're looking at like the Marvel cinematic universe, most of the villains are very easily forgettable because they are one note. They're single they're dimensional. Trying to do a genocide. <laughs> right. Like even Casual Thanos. Genocide. <laughs> even Thanos, who was built up over many movies. Once we finally like get what his deal is, which is I want to get infinite power in the universe so I can just eliminate half of the population instead of make more food or more <laughs> space. Both things that he could do in theory with all of the power. Um but you think of like Killmonger in Black Panther, who has very relatable, understandable goals. Like whether you agree with him or not, he's coming from a place of like Wakanda has this technology. They let people get murdered left and right every single day by the police state, whether that's in America, whether that's across the world. And like Wakanda should do something about it. And whether you think he's right, whether you think Chadwick Boseman's right, like you do you, but Killmonger like is a relatable person because he's not just like, I'm a genocidal maniac. Um, And that makes him a better character. I think it's really important with storytelling. Like obviously we, when you're creating a story, there's often a message behind it, at least hopefully. Otherwise you're just talking nonsense like I do, but I think it's really important to make characters that have both good and bad and have valid reasons for things. And like we said, not just want to kill because, man, there's too many fucking people. Just make less (laughs) of them. Like, okay, what what like even going back to the Thanos thing, just seeing his non-daughter daughter all of a sudden there and it's like i have all these emotions i'm like i want to save you and have a family but also like kill everybody like fuck all this like it was this weird stretch to make him relatable but it was so small and contrived at the end that we were like yeah fuck you you're not a dad you're not my dad (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i think we've we've sort of talked a lot about how queer coding villains is a bad thing or it comes from a bad place or it frequently can at the very bare minimum lead to like villains who are not as interesting as they could be because they are clearly like standing in for an idea. Some queer artists reclaim monstrosity, which is something that we touched on last season in our episode, Queering Monsters, uh, that you can go check out. We talked about two very good plays in it. But uh, a lot of queer people identify with these sort of queer coded villains or even find them empowering, even though those characters can be harmful. What I would argue is maybe the most famous, um, but maybe that's from like <laughs> my very specific perspective um, of this is Susan Stryker's essay, My Words to Victor Frankenstein, um, which uh, is, is I think, fraught with a lot of issues. Like there are a lot of things that I don't like about it or things that I think are limited about it. However, uh, at its core, her mission is, quote, I want to lay claim to the dark power of my monstrous identity without using it as a weapon against others or being wounded by it myself. If you are unfamiliar, it's basically her talking about her experience as a trans woman uh, and sort of weaponizing and using the way that she has or not weaponizing, explicitly not weaponizing, actually, (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, but using using the way that she is labeled as a monster because be because she's a trans woman, um, sort of using that to form her identity uh, and and turning it into something that um, 
she can sort of build around as opposed to something that just hurts her. And she makes a case for reclaiming the way queer and trans people are cast as evil monsters as a way to sort of dispel the power of those labels and codes altogether. And sort of in this vein, I used to run uh, an LGBTQ affinity space for queer youth. Um, And one week we talked about queer coding. We talked about Disney villains. We watched a bunch of clips of Disney villain songs and we're like, what's gay about this? Um, It was very fun. Uh, But many of those kids told me that the idea of villainy appeals to them in part because like in Disney movies, universally, the villains are so much cooler than any other character and because they identified with the way that those villains are othered or or cast out. And a question that I have about that is basically like, is this is this bad? Is this empowering? Like, I mean, I think on the one hand, there's there's people who have the belief that, like, if you don't see yourself in media, you see yourself as the monsters um, as like and sometimes I think it can be empowering to associate yourselves with those things, um, I think bunch of queer kids seeing scar and being like yeah he sissied that walk and i feel like that too <laughs> the, can the be actual good. the yes, best okay. one is that their favorite was um radigan from which oh, movie oh yeah. no no absolutely not no no are you fucking nuts <laughs> out of i mean like go off queen but also like are you nuts <laughs> no <laughs> But like sorry, in counterpoint, God. I would say it's it's uh, damaging to only see yourself as monstrous and to see the queer parts of yourself as necessarily a bad thing and something that other people will clock as being a bad thing. Like that, I think is bad. Um, but I also think that like the the youths that you were talking to are growing up in a very different cultural climate than like even we grew up in. Um, and so, you know, when you have Steven universe, um, where like queerness is celebrated, um, and makes people stronger, um, like that's a cool thing. Uh, we'll get into She-Ra a little later. Um, but like queerness is rampant in that show and doesn't make you a villain or a hero. Um, it's just like a facet of who you might be. I think, for me personally, the sense of otherness or aloneness because of something that makes you you, at least for me coming from personal experience, it's very much empowering to be like, oh, I'm not the only one that feels like I'm totally alone. But I think something that becomes harmful is then how that aloneness, that otherness turns into spite or malice. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to be alone and other because then maybe I'll turn into this angry, spiteful being. And I think it's that transformation from societal exclusion or just in general aloneness um, that can be scary. But like, I think it should be something to be, hey, that's. It, I think it is empowering, but needs it needs more outlets for it to transform from there. Not just your other. So you're going to be bad. Like that's, that's what you get. <laughs> well, cause even like, I think if this is the only representation available to like encouraging, especially youth to like define themselves by their marginalization to sort of center the feeling of being othered or the feeling of being cast out in their like personality is like probably unhealthy for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Like that's probably not good for you. Uh, yeah, no. Um, 
But I also think there is a marked difference between queerness in relation to villainy when it comes from a queer artist. I think Katra in the reboot of She-Ra uh, as written by Nate Stevenson is a really, really good example of this, that like that show explores uh, villainy with queer characters in a way that does not feel like queerness is evil, which would be mm-hmm. silly coming from Nate Stevenson. <laughs> right. Well, but because there are other queer people in in it throughout um and there's like loving queer relationships and i never finished shirat sorry nate um but i think katra and adora eventually mac they they do end up together i also haven't finished shira but i know that katra dora is a thing but i also i think like i think it's interesting because i think their relationship with each other and the love that they have for each other is sort of at the heart of why katra does all the things that she does and it's sort of mm-hmm at the heart of why she is a villain, but not in a way that implies that like it's the, it's the fact that she is gay that is villainous. It's rather. Yeah. yeah. Her queerness isn't the contributor to her villainous. Like they're separate things. It just happens that her, she's just very in love with her coworker. Um. We've all been there. We've all tried to blow up the world because of that. Um. (laughs) Whomst among us. I don't want to talk. Uh, so to pivot us a little bit into gaming um, we mentioned this a little bit in our queer theater episode but sort of like I think the most prominent example of this in tabletop games uh, is the book Queer Coded by Oliver Darkshare which is a 5e supplement that sort of reskins iconic D&D villains like Xanathar and Yarlaxle into sort of like queer figures um, some of them are trans, some of them love to go to brunch, some of them are drag queens, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I mean, when this when this supplement came out, there was a lot of flack um, on the internet about it. On the one hand, there were people who were saying like, this isn't really representation. You just made a bunch of gay punching bags to hit because they're all bad people. And like, while I hear that, um, I also feel like, there aren't NPC supplements that people like go like, here's some great queer side characters for <laughs> your games. But I also think people would have similar critiques for that. Um, and like in D and D, which is about, you know, uh, conquest and raiding and like fighting people. Um, I think the best way to introduce queer characters into a game that are going to be there um, that aren't your player characters is probably through your villains that you see a couple times. Yeah, I I mean, my my chief objection to this when it came out was more to do with like, I'm just sort of like, who is like, what audience is this for? Because it doesn't feel like it's written for queer people to me necessarily, although I'm uh, a different in a, in a different vein of queerness than the person who wrote it, but it sort of feels like there are some places where I think this leans on stereotype a little bit in a way that mm-hmm. like rubs me the wrong way. But I do think it does a really good job of creating villains with interesting motivations and that have a lot of depth to them. Um, I'm just sort of like, who is this? Like, who is this for? Um, Cause I've yeah. never, I've never known a queer D&D player to not just go ahead and inject all the gay shit that they want into their game mm-hmm. already. Totally. I think 
I think this was a very tongue in cheek thing and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels very tongue in cheek. And I think um, Oliver was saying like, okay, let's take the queer coding and just make it explicit. Like let's take the subtext and make it text. And I, I think he's having a laugh here, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's, I guess that's fair. Um, the question it raises for me is what, like what happens when your enemies are coming from your own community and how does that impact your actions as a player character, particularly in a game like D&D where sort of the thing you are incentivized to do right away is fight whoever the villain is. I think you go about it differently when it's a character that you already have some type of relationship with, especially if it is within your own community, like you're going to like if I was to go off right now and fly into the middle of the Atlantic and go fight a sea monster, I wouldn't really have two fucks to give about it. I'd be like, all right, sick. Like, it's nighttime. It might be scary, but okay. But versus like, hey, you have to fight your cat who's suddenly homophobic. Like, well, shit. We gotta oh, talk no. about this first. Like, buddy. You know, this, Carbs, you're gonna no. approach it. <laughs> Garbage. No. Um, but yeah, you're like, you're gonna go about that differently. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of, like, anxiety about queer bashing as played out in this. And it feels like that's not the intention, even though they are set up like regular villains and they have lair actions and they have legendary actions and hit points and all that. Oliver also didn't, isn't there also a cheeky thing at the beginning that's like, fight them or make out. And I think leaning into that like i don't know they're queer like you are maybe you just want to smooch both do both it's bisexual visibility week do both <laughs> <laughs> i vote both <laughs> all right speaking on doing both enemies to lovers let's talk about that. damn <laughs> that was the smoothest segue you're all welcome <laughs> why <clears throat> Let's be serious. Yo, why is enemies to lovers such a beloved trope? Besides the fact that it is hot as fuck. Um, <laughs> it's generally like it's really nice to see everyone get a redemption round. Like it's nice to see stories about people who like, despite the fact that you tried to burn down my village and kill my people, I see now that you were just scared and you're a really good person. But also like, what the fuck just happened? It's that like I that willingness to see the good in everybody it's that like i there's a lot of different things that come from it like the, i can save them or oh wow you were really just this the whole time or like you've foregone your evil ways and you completely changed there's a lot of different things that play into it but uh, i like it but i do think it can have a very toxic way of viewing what makes somebody good and worthy of love by someone you already perceive as good. Yeah, I find that I like enemies to lovers tropes more when they happen in the context of like two rivals who rather than like a hero and a villain falling in love, it's just like two people who don't like each other finding that like their obsessive feelings about one another are actually love when like we're thinking about evil in a more relative way as opposed to the like overarching notions of good and evil like morality well and i think enemies to lovers doesn't necessarily imply villains to lovers yeah mm -hmm. um but like lives in that sort of uh rival situation often um and i think going from someone that you view as something to overcome 
versus someone that you view with like respect and admiration yeah um, is a cool place to be i'm just gonna put this in there as an enemies to lovers i would really like to see someday um mega mind and metro man and i'm just gonna leave that there and walk away from it thank you very much i ship it and i really would like to see it too okay thank right. you right no, no comment <laughs> <laughs> what does it take to move from enemy to lover <laughs> just some spandex and good intentions <laughs> i mean i think that there usually has to be some sort of like redemption or some like reveal of admiration like if we're looking at beatrice and benedict in um is that much ado about nothing yeah the two are always at each other's throats. We like hear that there was some sort of thing between them a while ago. Um, but now whenever they see each other, it's just like verbal barbs that they exchange with one another again and again and again. Um, and their friends immediately clock. Oh my God. The only thing that will get these two to shut up is if they like just finally make out already. <laughs> um, so they decide to like set that up. Um, and the only way they are successful is by telling each other that the other is really in love with them. Um, and by having this reversal, Beatrice and Benedict each are suddenly confronted with like, Oh my God, is that something? Is that why this has been going on this long? And then they um, change how they are performing for one another. It's that glamorous thing of like reading each other for filth, but then you're literally like l learning more about each other as you continue to bicker and pull people apart. And then you're like, okay, well, I really like what I see. So this is awkward. <laughs> and I really enjoy that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's a core question of redemption and a core moment of like, a realization on both of their parts of like, oh, I care so much about this person. Yeah. And At I just like, realized I like you around because I want to bully you. And it's like, no, I just like you around. Like, shit. Yeah. Like the most wholesome iteration of the like uh, thing that like little girls are told like, oh, that boy on the playground bullies you because he likes you. <laughs> that was the same. Was <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> it turns out I'm just very easy to bully. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I like fighting back. <laughs> okay, so how does Thirsty Sword Lesbians encourage this enemies to lovers dynamic? It seems like there's certain playbooks that like are in part this trope, um, whether that's uh, Malta Regina's playbook. The infamous. The infamous, um, where a villain is like trying to turn over a new leaf. When I was reading that, I got so many Catra vibes. Yes. Uh, like very strongly. Uh, there's also the scoundrel who is uh, mm -hmm. Coney Shiversville's um, playbook is sort of like this rapscallion who like doesn't give a fuck about what anybody thinks and like has wronged a few people in their past. Um, like I think there's a lot of playbooks that are sort of like uh, people have people would have a valid reason not to like you. Um, <laughs> and like, let's see. Let's see how that goes. Mm -hmm. And I think there are places where the game incentivizes you to make the unpopular choice or to do the the thing that somebody might not like because it's dramatically really interesting, especially in a game where like all of the 
like like it's so interpersonal in its focus well and there's like uh the gay master is told specifically to like make your villains both believable redeemable and likable like they shouldn't be just you know flat one note characters they should be characters that your players might want to sword fight and might want to smooch um and i think that that actively encourages that like you don't have to take someone out of a fight by giving them a bunch of conditions you can take them out of a fight or make them not a threat um by like understandably kissing them in a dangerous situation and having that well-rounded type of combat like some a character that you're combating against uh, prompts your players to have more options on how they react to that character instead of just like yeah get in tongues out swords out let's go like you have more (laughs) options yeah um and even like we saw like we mentioned malta regina but i think if you're looking for like a sort of enemies to lovers I won't tell you how it ends up, but like the seeds of an enemies to lovers relationship, we can look back to last week's episode of Thirsty Sword Lesbians, where Rugosa got smitten with Malta Regina. And that opens up a lot of complicated feelings because of Rugosa's playbook, The Devoted. So also, I think Thirsty Sword Lesbians, because it gives you an emotional conflict to play, makes it really easy to play these sort of emotion focused tropes like enemies to lovers because you have like tensions to reconcile that are really fun to sort of pull on. And I also think that like, we talked about this a little in the explainer, but thirsty sword lesbians thinks about like the toxic powers of like capitalism and hegemony, et cetera, are probably the most villainous thing in the game. And we happen to have a playbook that is all about like relationship with a toxic power, the seeker playbook with Nymeria, um, which I think is also sort of interesting and like, how do these beliefs that are sort of counter to the prevailing beliefs of the world in Nymeria's case, these very like patriarchal beliefs sort of impact the way that she relates to other characters uh, in comparison to the other PCs. Mm -hmm. Now that we've talked a little bit about how, you know, enemies to lovers works in games and theater and stuff, and also like queer coding with villains. Let's talk a little bit about what makes a good villain. I think that, you should be able to look at your villain or anyone should be able to look at your villain and be like, "Mm, they kind of have a point or like, I could see where they're coming from. (laughs) Um, Like they should have a reason for doing whatever it is they're doing or whether, whether it be, you know, they're doing something we would consider villainous, but for a reason we would understand or relate to, or they're so bent on doing something that they're ignoring the consequences of what they're doing that are disastrous. Um, like someone who's too easy to hate isn't compelling as a villain. Again, like what we said earlier, they can't just be sexist, racist, and homophobic um, <laughs> as a shorthand for telling us that they're evil, because ultimately that's not interesting to play. Yeah, and especially in gameplay, like you need a little bit more just because basically your descriptions and just your vocal portrayal is really all that your players have to go off of. It's different when you have a little bit more of a visual context. And I would say the only time that I've really accepted a more flat lined kind of villain would be on something like law and order where it's like, Oh, well, this is relatable. This is a person and they're just out to hurt other people. I get that. Cool. Got it. That's a thing that I have seen proven versus this is a totally fantastical world that really needs that stronger definition and stronger context behind 
why do bad thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like if you're trying to build a good villain, um, I think kind of making an idea map of what is their end goal and what drives them toward it. Um, and then thinking about like, what are ways that your players might try to thwart them and how will your villain try to keep themselves on track? Like those are things that make interesting villains is having a clear goal that even if your players don't understand it at first or don't know all of it at first, um, all of these pieces can line up from doing like X or Y or Z to oh my god she's been trying to bring back her dead wife this whole time yeah like that's why she raided the sacred library and <laughs> killed the fell dragon guard or whatever um like there are things that do drive people to do crazy things and one of those things is love or you know uh I don't know, critical role, the Briarwoods, they seem to have some feelings and some ideas. I I mean, they are, uh, <laughs> they're like <laughs> devoted to like Vecna and evil God. Okay. Um, but well, a lot like, of, yeah. but a lot of what Delilah Briarwood is trying to do is very driven by her devotion to her husband Silas and he to her. So it like, there is like their relationship to each other. That's also sort of driving a lot of what's going on, but it's, yeah. The other thing I would say is I, I understand that this might not be for everybody. This is a hot take that I have. I don't think every campaign needs a BBEG. Like I vote to, in some cases, like get rid of the idea of a big, bad, evil guy. Like I think we can. Or a big, bad, evil gay in this case. Or a big, bad, evil gay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I, I'm not saying that every game has to be like morally gray and like difficult to navigate, but like. The Last of Us is interesting as a game because you as a player character are occasionally doing things that are fucked up and bad because you have a reason to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes it's more interesting rather than saying, here is the villain that you have mm-hmm. to defeat because you are the heroes of the story. Instead, giving your adventuring party, like, here is your goal and the thing that you want. Here's what you're trying to work towards. And then just putting obstacles in the way that have their own reason for pursuing that same thing or their own reason for stopping the party is way more interesting than like one singular figure with an evil plan. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, and to like, to dive into the last of us Two again for a second, which I know we've talked about before (laughs) on this podcast, but like part of what makes Abby such an interesting character um, in the last of us Two is we see her first and we don't understand her motivations. We don't get why she's doing what she's doing. She has come here. She has murdered Joel And Ellie is fucking pissed about it. And Ellie goes on a revenge campaign for three days all over Seattle. Um, And then right before Abby and Ellie come into conflict, you, the player, are forced to play through Abby's side of things. Mm -hmm. And you understand why Abby did what she did, who these people that Ellie has killed mean, like who they are and what they mean to Abby and you understand like what emotional distress she is in by the time she finally comes into conflict with Ellie face to face. Mm -hmm. And then you're forced to play as Ellie again. And it's heartbreaking. Like I lost that fight so many times because I didn't want to hurt Abby because I understood what she was going through. And I understood the pain (laughs) that she was dealing with and her 
like very reasonable motivations for doing something that she did to a character that I adore, um, who is complicated and morally gray <laughs> and hard. Uh, and like that makes, I don't, I would call her an anti-hero fully. Um, but like the, the game takes the idea of villainy and just like turns it up. It's on its head because it forces you, the player to live through and understand why this person is doing what they're doing. Um, and you see her as just another person trying to make their way in the world. And I think that is really great. And so like, if you're doing like, if you need a big, bad, evil guy, like make someone who has a very compelling story that you can also telegraph to your players. Um, that's not just like, let me give you a villain monologue at the last <laughs> moment before our big fight so that you understand why I've done this. But like forcing your characters to choose between what they think is the right thing to do and what this person is trying to do. Like that's cool and interesting um, versus like, I just wanted to watch Water Deep burn. Uh, is like, sure, have fun, go do a nice combat. Um, but it doesn't necessarily like make for an interesting story. I have one beef with this because I really agree with you and I want to give everybody a, an example of a villain that tried to have something relatable, but it was really poorly delivered and poorly executed. And don't come for us on this, but Resident Evil Village 8, y'all. For those of you that have not played the game, let's get into some very quick beef. I'm going to make this very short because I'm still really angry about it. But anyhow, basically the super villain, she has this beautiful baby that she lost a five billion bajillion years ago and it's like needs to resurrect it from the abyss. So she sends out all her little minions to steal this baby from poor Ethan, who is basically like a war veteran. It's just like, yeah, that's mine. I'm going to break yours apart, build a baby. And this one's mine because I lost mine. So fuck you. I get mine. But like it was all of this just slaughter and just like lives, carnage, everything. And by the end, she's like, I finally have a daughter. It's like, where was this at the beginning of the game? Where was all of this? It was just, by the end, I was like, yeah, fuck you. Fuck your baby. I don't care. Like, that, The Last of Us does a really good job at creating emotional attachment to each of the characters for different reasons. Like, you're invested in each of them, and you, like, you want wins for everybody in certain ways, shapes, or form. Or, like, you can understand reasoning. Whereas Resident Evil was just, Made me really angry because that could have been really cool, but yeah. Well, I think I think with I think with this what we're talking about requires is uncoupling our idea of like a compelling story from the morality of good versus evil, which is so baked into D anD D that it's hard to mm -hmm. get away from. But at the same time, I think frequently it is more compelling to think of things in terms of like clashing objectives and the mm -hmm. conflict that comes from that. And it could very well be that your villain's objective is to do something that is fucked up and evil and bad, but conceptualizing it less as like, I'm going to choose the most fucked up thing I can think of for this villain to do. And more as like, I'm going to choose something that will invite the PCs to want to stop them because they're invested in it, not because they feel like they are supposed to TM. Mm -hmm. That I think is, is where, is where drama comes from. Yeah. Especially subtle nod to our own 
podcast, but that's something that we really hey, um, try to work on just because obviously with the podcast, you don't even get to see the players and how they are reacting to certain things. So it is very much a narrative heavy focus and also just um, making sure that the communication of context is so, so clear. We started this episode talking about uh, the history of queer coding villains and how really it's just a shorthand. And if you want to make a good villain, don't use shorthand. Yeah. Um, one, if you're listening to this podcast, you're like probably not queer coding your villains as shorthand. Um, <laughs> that'd be weird. Um, but also like, as Percy was saying before, just coding someone as racist or sexist or transphobic or homophobic um, or anti-Semitic, um, like that doesn't make for an interesting villain either. You can make villains that are those things, um, but they should probably have something deeper going on. Otherwise, they're just stand-ins for punching bags. And like what I like about Thirsty Sword Lesbians is it doesn't, like you could do that, but it doesn't devolve into that. It's about how do characters come in conflict with one another? um, And how do they want to stop each other either with their blades, their wit, or with smooching and i think that's fun and super queer (laughs) (laughs) on that note uh join us next week for more blades and wit and smooching and megafauna dungeons and drama nerds is produced by todd brian backus percival hornack and nicholas orvis and is mixed and edited by anthony sertel dean season three features contributions from christopher dierkson ben ferber Corey flores tess huth romana isabella leo mock John John Johnson and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.